There are nearly 300,000 University of Alberta alumni around the world. They are your neighbors, your community members, your colleagues. You'll find them in all manner of work, in all kinds of places. And when disaster strikes, you'll find them on the front lines. These are their stories. This is The Line. Good evening. Tomorrow marks another step in Alberta's reopening plan. Non-urgent surgeries will start up again, and in-person optometrists, physiotherapists, and in some cases, dental appointments will be allowed. But is there a problem? We are entering a relaunch in Alberta, and no one knows exactly what to expect. By the time you hear this, many services and businesses will have reopened their doors. But with that comes additional risk, especially for businesses that provide health services. I personally got a calendar reminder for a dentist appointment I had made six months ago, and I'm starting to wonder if my appointment will actually happen. Dentists, it seems to me, carry additional risk when it comes to COVID-19. We are told to wear masks to cover our mouths, but that's precisely where they do their work. How are dentists readying for a relaunch? What are the risks that affect them and their staff specifically? And how do they plan on keeping patients safe when they perform procedures in the pandemic? To answer these questions, we wanted to talk to a dentist with experience. Well, I've been a dentist for 40 years. That's the voice of Dr. Paul Major. He's the chair of the School of Dentistry at the U of A and also a practicing orthodontist. His background therefore includes not only dental practice, but also teaching and research. Overall, he says dentistry has been a rewarding career. Well, I've enjoyed uh, well, dentistry. It's been a fantastic career choice, quite frankly. Um, independence of practice and the ability to control that, uh, working in the health professions, um, you know, all those kinds of things brought it to me. I like working with small objects and, and fine motor skills. But I, I did four years of general dentistry before I came back and did graduate studies to specialize. And then when I completed my specialty training, I got very interested in research and academics. So I've been a university faculty member here for about 35 years. The first question I have for Paul was clarification about what dentistry has been like since things shut down in early March. So all dental practices in Alberta stopped doing anything but emergency care uh, back in March. And so that, that includes our practice as well. Now, the Alberta Dental Association College uh, provided us a definition of what emergency care was, and it was a very strict definition. It was really related to patients who were having, you know, uh, serious infections, uh, very serious pain types of issues. So the level of patients we were seeing in all of our practices was very restricted. Starting May 4th, limits on dentists have relaxed slightly to include urgent care as well as emergency care. To me, these things sound the same. So I asked Paul to clarify. Yes. So, you know, the, under urgent care, there's been a, a number of other uh, procedures that are not uh, defined as emergency that are, are now um, able to be treated in dental offices. So, for example, um, orthodontic treatment for ongoing uh, patients under care. Uh, we're now able to see all of those patients that have braces on their teeth and manage the, the braces. Uh, we're, at this point, we're not placing braces on new braces on patients, but we're continuing care that patients are under care. Other things would be things like cementing crowns that had already been prepared and temporized prior to uh, the um, onset of the pandemic. And so now dentists are able to you know, proceed with treatment that they had ongoing prior to. Other things might include things like unfinished root canal treatments are now able to proceed 
so there's there's again the dental college the Alberta Dental Association College has put out you know very definite guidelines for dentists what would be considered to be urgent care and and we need to follow those guidelines I cannot imagine what it would be like to have had a severe toothache or an unfinished root canal since early March. And while I have often wondered what services people might forego during the pandemic as a precautionary measure, I can't imagine dental surgery would be one of them. I asked Paul what he thought about patients being risk-averse and if he had seen patients seeking urgent care. Now, my own personal experience um, as an orthodontist, I've been seeing patients now under urgent care, the patients that are in active treatment. And um, uh, so last week was the first week that I saw patients in, in for, for some time now. The patients uh, were very grateful that they could get back and get their treatment on track again. And I, I didn't encounter uh, any concerns from patients coming through my practice about whether or not we were adequately protecting them as the public. Now, I would expect that, you know, these patients are obviously very motivated to try and keep the treatment going. Many of them, in fact, our office phones started ringing like crazy the, when, when that uh, went to urgent care. But I think you're quite right. The patients that are waiting to get a routine dental checkup and cleaning are, are, are not, uh, well, first off, we can't do that right now anyway. But even if we could, I expect some of those patients would choose to defer that until they're a bit more confident. Um, the other thing I've observed, um, not just in the public, but in our staff and so on, is that there's quite a, a wide range of people's uh, willingness to bear risk, if you will. And some patients, some of our staff are very risk averse and very concerned about, you know, protecting themselves and protecting their families from potential infection, uh, depending on their circumstances. So we are finding some staff are very reluctant to return to work. Paul's comment about staff concerns reflects the reality that many private businesses are facing. For dentists, though, being a private business, but also a healthcare provider, amplifies that risk. Dentistry deals with bodily fluids. As I said earlier, they're literally working inside your mouth, and that means saliva, for one thing. And if you're like me and you don't floss regularly, there's plenty of blood, too. I asked Paul what sort of safety precautions dentists normally take, and how they're regulated. When it relates to patient safety, that's under the um, authority of all of the regulatory authorities across Canada. So each province has its own regulatory authority that's responsible for setting professional standards of, uh, and conduct. And certainly infection control procedures and, and public safety for dental procedures is mandated through, in our case, the Alberta Dental Association College. Um, and it is in all provinces, but it does vary a little bit between provinces based on the uh, individual regulatory authorities and how they've interpreted those guidelines. So all dentists, and, and Alberta's probably has been the most um, robust, I would suppose you could say, in terms of infection control procedures that dentists operate under. And, and the Alberta Dental Association College approximately 10 years ago brought in you know, really quite at that time advanced uh, regulations as to how dentists are to um, manage infection control. And essentially we've treated all patients as potentially infectious uh, in, our, in our practices. Um, and we've taken universal precautions for all patients to avoid any cross-contamination and, and that sort of thing. The issue that's kind of arisen with the COVID though, which is different um, is that up until now, um, we've not been, uh, really concerned about the aerosol production in dentistry. And so that's the big issue that's come forward at this point is that um, uh, some of the safety precautions we've taken have really been to uh, protect ourselves and, and so on using, you know, level one masks, for example, for dental procedures. 
but level one masks are probably not sufficient for um, viruses that might be in the aerosols produced off of patients that are infected. So that's really the, the issue. So we've known for a long time that dental procedures create aerosols, um, and that's been well established. However, the risk of those aerosols and um, how they travel, how long they would take to resolve, um, is really not been researched very much at this point in time. And, and it's now, now that's the big central issue in terms of patient uh, safety and, and workplace safety for dental practitioners and dental staff. When I heard Paul mention aerosols, I was reminded of articles I had read about issues at meatpacking plants that had had particularly bad outbreaks. It wasn't just working in close proximity that caused the spread, but the constant running of fans and spraying of water that aerosolized the virus. I asked Paul to explain how that could happen in a dental practice. Yeah, so, I mean, aerosols aren't unique to dentistry. So what it is, is it's tiny water droplets that may contain uh, various biological um, uh, contents, and including uh, shedding of viruses. And so, you know, that's the transmission. If a person sneezes or coughs, they create and, and push out an aerosol, which could contain the, the virus. And that's how people can get affected uh, without physical contact. So in, in dentistry, because there is uh, some degree of viral load in the saliva, um, as we are working in the mouth and we create an aerosol, so our dental drills, for example, spray water, which then can bring up a, a, you know, a, a mist, I suppose, a very small mist um, that may at this point now contain some of the viruses. So that's really the concern. It's, it's the dental procedures that create an aerosol, which is a, a, a mist, a very fine mist, you would, you would say a fluid, which then uh, could carry the virus particles out sort of beyond the immediate environment. Paul mentioned masks, and of course, they're an important part of PPE. Dentists required PPE even before the pandemic began. Paul had said they treat all patients as if they're infectious just to be safe. But I wondered how now, under these circumstances, they acquired PPE. Was it harder to come by? As a private business, do dentists have to compete with one another for PPE? Uh, some dentists were donating some of their PPE at the start of the pandemic. Um, but where we are right now is, is normally dentists would um, uh, procure their PPE through either medical suppliers or dental suppliers. And it's never really been a problem in the past. There was a well-established supply chain that met the demand. But of course, as we all know, rural demand for PPE, in particular, the N95 level masks um, has become very challenging and even hospitals are having trouble in many jurisdictions getting enough PPE. So it is a real problem right now as dentists are starting to not just provide emergency care, but also providing urgent care for patients. Um, the need for dentists to be able to um, source PPE is a real challenge in our, our, our profession at the moment. Now, in Alberta, we've been able to obtain uh, PPE uh, through Alberta Health Services for emergency dental care on a very limited basis. So every two weeks, we could put in a request to Alberta Health Services and obtain uh, necessary PPE to be able to take care of emergency patient. But that's not sufficient for the urgent care patients, which are now uh, under, under care of dentists as of May the 4th. Because Paul is a practicing dentist and also a faculty member at the university, I wanted to ask him about students. How are they affected by the pandemic? How does it affect their learning? Well, the, the students uh, stopped seeing patients uh, in March when uh, dental practices were 
uh, closed except for emergency care. So at the university, emergency care and for the patients that come to the university dental clinic, we have a very large clinic in K Edmonton Clinic. And all of the patients that require emergency care were being managed by faculty members, not by students. Uh, so currently, our students at the University of Alberta are not allowed to have in-person learning. Uh, so they're not seeing patients right now. And they're not doing their simulation training either right now. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to get students back into providing um, clinical learning uh, in hopefully in July. But at this time, they're not actually seeing patients. It seemed to me that the inability to treat patients as part of their education would make it especially hard for dental students to learn. So much of the profession is hands-on. There's an element of craftsmanship to the work. It's not something you can merely study. It's something you have to actually do in order to learn. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's no different than a surgeon. You can't become a surgeon by a textbook. You have to learn by treating patients. And it's the same for dentists. We um, provide them a lot of information that they need as background information, but they have to learn the skill itself. And the skill can only be acquired by treating patients. And um, that's exactly right. We, that's a, that's, we cannot uh, graduate competent dentists until they've had significant clinical experience under very controlled environments. I knew from my other work that the School of Dentistry also has outreach programs, such as the Boyle Macaulay Dental Clinic. I'm familiar with it because I had heard of the SHINE program, which provides free dental treatment to inner-city youth. I asked how they were affected. Yes, the University of Alberta has um, partnered with the Boyle Macaulay Health Centre, and uh, together we did fundraising. We built a dental clinic, a new dental clinic uh, there. They, they also still fall under the mandate uh, set by the Dental Association College. They have the, the dentists are there. So our students go there, but it's also staff dentists. They have both uh, learning learners going there and staff dentists. But they follow all the same rec regulations as I would follow in terms of uh, protecting the, the health of the patients and the public. So they follow the mandate from the dental college. Given all that's happening right now, I wanted to know what could change for dentists in the future based on what they've learned, based on what they've observed, how might dentists alter their practice after the pandemic? So, so one of the things that's happening is that, um, as I indicated, um, there hasn't really been sufficient research in dental-produced aerosols and, this, and how uh, much of a danger they represent in terms of health um, and safety. So there's certainly a flurry of activity going on now in the whole research world around COVID and, and how the dentally produced aerosols um, have to be managed or should be managed so that there is very likely to be changes that will be long-term around that, depending on what the evidence actually does emerge. But in the absence of evidence, then we're taking the highest level possible, as you could imagine. But some of that may not necess be necessary on the long-term, it's hard to say. Other changes, I guess we'll just have to kind of wait and see because we're so early into this return to work. But the one thing that is clear is that the need for dental services isn't going to go away. Uh, dentistry is a health. It, it's, it's critical to the overall health of our, our um, patients and well-being of our patients. And so the need for dental care is not going to change um, over time. I think it maybe how it gets accessed and delivered might change, but the need's not going to change. Though unrelated to dentistry, I had to ask Paul about his experience being stuck on a cruise. I had read article about cruises that were refused port, and I wanted to know what that was like. So when I learned Paul spent five weeks on a cruise that was supposed to only be two weeks, well, I asked him. 
Yeah, that's correct. Uh, my wife and I went on uh, a cruise that started in Argentina and was going around the south end of South America and was uh, planned to end in Chile. And we were about halfway through that planned two-week cruise when the ports all started to close as the pandemic started to shut down the world. And so we were not allowed to get off the boat. Um, and so the, the boat then cruised up and it was quite challenging because initially the uh, authorities in Chile weren't even going to allow the boat to resupply and refuel so it could keep traveling north. So that was the first challenge. Then as it started traveling north, it did get resupplied and refueled in Chile. Um, but two days after we were sailing north towards Florida, that was the plan was to head north to where they thought they could get a port that would accept them. Uh, then people started getting sick on the boat. So we all got quarantined to our rooms for the next two weeks as we sailed up got up as far as um, uh, Panama and at that point uh, you know the, the illness on the boat was becoming you know more pronounced so they sent a second boat to join the first boat and they transferred about 800 passengers from the boat I was on the Zandam to the Rotterdam and they finally got permission to go through the Panama Canal which was a challenge that took two or three days of negotiations to allow the transit and then we sailed up to Florida but of course there was no, at that point, approval to dock at Florida. So that was another huge challenge is to get permission to actually dock the boat, um, which eventually happened. We eventually uh, ended up in Fort Lauderdale to get off the boat. So what started out to be a 3,500 mile cruise turned into, a, I think, about a 10,000 mile cruise in the end. And what was supposed to be two weeks turned into five weeks. We were fortunate because we had a, 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 our room had the balcony, so we were able to get outside. Uh, much more pleasant than the other individuals that were stuck in rooms where they couldn't get outside and, and even experience sunshine or fresh air. Uh, so that was certainly there. Um, it, the, you know, we were safe the entire time. We were very well treated by the boat people and they fed us well and so on. Uh, it did get a bit tedious, so quite boring, obviously, being in a tiny room 24-7. Uh, um, and uh, imagine if you didn't get along with your partner, that could be a challenge too. <laughs> But uh, when we got off the boat, it was it was quite a production getting off the boat, quite frankly, because um, the port authorities in Florida um, kept us completely segregated from everywhere else. So we had police escorts. They took us off the boat, loaded us on buses, uh, all police escorted to the airport. Uh, they didn't stop for traffic lights or anything. It was quite a quite a production. Uh, got to the airport, didn't go into the terminal. It went onto the tarmac, and they had a chartered airplane to take the. You know, 150 Canadians were on that cruise back to Canada, uh, so we didn't actually go through normal processes there. Um, loaded onto an airplane, flew up to Toronto, and then had to go through. Took about three hours in Toronto to get through all the Health Canada checks and you know, all the immigration things and that sort of thing uh, to get there. So it was it was quite a production. Even once we got off the the boat, quite frankly, we were very thankful to step off the plane in Edmonton though and uh, and actually then be able to go in, into our own home. The last thing we wanted to know from Paul was his overall level of concern. What's he most worried about right now? How does he keep his head above water while trying to balance his many different roles from teaching to dental practice? How does he get anything done? So, you know, I think um, the biggest concern I have is, is really how our students are going to get the education they need. Uh, that's my biggest concern and and the uncertainties around when we can get them back into in-person learning which is critical for their development so that's my biggest 
worry and concern. Um, and that's occupies a huge amount of our time these days is to work with that. Um, I've become quite involved recently in, in trying to evaluate the literature and the uh, research that's out there. Alberta Health Services has formed a group that's you know evaluating the literature and I'm involved at the national level in, in terms of looking at um, what is the evidence around what is safe for dental practice and what isn't. Um, and you know, so that's very uh, important sort of area of work these days. I mean, to answer your other question about how do you get everything done, I think it's like everybody else. And I tell my kids, there's only so many hours in a day. You set your priorities, get done what you can do, and then the next day starts and you do it over again. So, but, you know, if you sort of understand that, then it reduces much of the stress attached to what you don't get done because you can only do so much. The Line is a University of Alberta Alumni Association podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Matt Ray, and produced by me and Chloe Chalmers. Things happen fast in the pandemic, and we're trying to keep track by noting how these episodes function as snapshots in time. Our interview with Paul was actually just recorded earlier this week, on Monday. At the time, there were 6,300 cases in Alberta, and that number has only increased by a few hundred since. However, as businesses begin to open up, this could be an important point of reference. While we relax containment measures, I'm reminded of the warning Pat Kearney gave me more than a month ago. It doesn't take long for a few cases to become hundreds, and for a few hundred to become thousands. This virus spreads easily, and with speed. So if you are venturing out during this relaunch period, please take precautions. And as always, stay safe.